everyone, and welcome back to the Tuneful, Beatful, Artful Music Teacher Podcast. Are you like me when it comes to this technology age in which we live and breathe? Of course, I really love it and the social media that comes along with it, but sometimes I just do not get how it all works. Like Snapchat. Seriously, what is up with Snapchat? Uh, I tried to understand it. I have an account, but I just don't get it. And I've basically given up. I'm definitely great at Facebook and I'm okay at the Instagram world. But on today's Keeping It Real, I wanted to talk about Twitter, which is a platform that I've only recently come to truly appreciate. I love the news part, it's true, and I admit that the travel, food, and entertainment news can draw me in because it's pretty interesting. But what I absolutely love is the professional interaction it allows and the ability it gives me to share the stuff that's happening in my classroom, while also allowing me to learn about what's going on in other teachers' programs. Oh, speaking of that, would you please follow the podcast at TBA Music Teacher? And while you're at it, follow me at DocStrong26. Anyway, last month I came across a post from fellow educator Natalie. Um, her handle is at Nat D Drew, so N A T D E E D R U. That really made me think. Uh, Part of it was simply a question that said, if you are a teacher, would you want to be a student in your classroom? I don't have too much to add to that right now because I think the question alone is enough to give us a lot to ponder. I've been contemplating it uh, a ton since seeing it on Twitter, and I don't have any big answers yet, but I have come to realize that I continue to need to work harder to think about my students more as individuals as opposed to how they function as a part of a class. How they function as part of a class is important, but even more important is who are they as individuals. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, yeah, that's nice, but if you're a music teacher, you could have 300 to 700 or even 1,000 students. So take this idea with a grain of salt, but it's always a great investment of time to think about each of your students as the unique and important individuals they are. Now let's get on to the podcast. For the next two episodes, we are once again joined by the one and only Dr. John Feyerabend. He and I were presenting at this year's Texas Music Educators Association Conference in San Antonio, Texas. A side note, TMEA is an amazing and magical experience for any music educator lucky enough to attend, and I'm not exaggerating. If you haven't been, no matter where you teach in the world, if it's at all possible, I strongly encourage you to make the trek down there for this epic event at least once in your life. No joke, there are almost 30,000 music educators and administrators and students in attendance. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, You could be teaching in a room that has as quote unquote few as 200 people. And you could also be in one of the ballrooms where over 2000 people are. And you're just in your element. The exhibitors hall alone is of epic proportions. So definitely get down there. 
Anyway, while we were recording the interview and John really got to talking about the things that he considers to be of utmost importance in his philosophy, the non-negotiables, it occurred to me that there was so much fantastic rich information that I was going to have to break the interview into two parts. That way, all of you hearing it have time to listen and then listen again because there is a lot to digest. Dr. Feyerabend drops a ton of wisdom in these two episodes, and I hope you enjoy this part one of our Feyerabend non-negotiable episodes. Okay, welcome to the podcast, everyone. We are here at the Texas Music Educators Association Conference Professional Development Extravaganza. There are a lot of people here, Dr. Feyerabend. This is the largest music education conference, I think, in the world. In the world. Yeah, I mean, if it's not, I'd like to see the one that's bigger. Yeah, we go walk into the exhibits. You could spend a whole day just to get from one end to the other. I brought my second son, who he said I knew it would be cool, but when we walked through those exhibits, I lost him maybe five times. I was just <laughs> walking, and I'm like, Owen, and he's like, Look over here. There's violas, and look over here. There's drum sets. So if you can get to TMEA, oh yes, I had never thought about this before, but people should come, like. I have friends in Belgium who come as a group every year to this. They just want to go to the best conference yeah, in the world. Yeah, I mean, so there are major headliners here, tons of stuff going on. There's a lot going on. So we're here. You may hear some wonderful ambient noise as a result of 30,000 music teachers. The other thing that's great about this conference from a presenter's point of view is you normally do a session and you might have a large group would be one or 200 people right. attending. And here there's around a thousand people in your session and we're not talking and this is just the elementary teachers and this isn't just one session there'll be three sessions at a time and they yes. all have a thousand people in them. I mean it's so they crazy. have jumbotrons at the front of the hall <laughs> so that people can see what you're talking about it's a really remarkable remarkable yeah. it's different from anything else everything's bigger in Texas I've, I've heard that and apparently it's true well I am so glad that you're willing to sit down again and talk and my pleasure I I appreciate it, and I think people so far have been responding really positively to the things you have to say, which is not a surprise, but it's nice to have a new venue to put the word out. Thank you for mounting these well, podcasts. Well, okay. You're welcome. Anyone who's taken a course with you over, you know, over the years uh, knows that there's a great deal of flexibility in what you do. I think you're careful to always say, this is not the way it is a way. Um, of course, for me, I'm happy to say this is the way. But for you, and you're the one that made it up, so you get to say what you want to say, uh, you always talk about, and I agree, there's, there's so much flexibility in the program. What I think you offer is, first and foremost, kind of a philosophy about the best ways to bring out the inherent musicality in children and in adults, really, in humans. Um, and then you've gone on to say, and here are some ways that I have done it, that others around me have done it, this is what research says, that kind of thing. Um, you very rarely, if ever, say, you know, it has to be done this way when it comes to these programs. Is that fair? Yes, like you are, I think you're about to mention. I do have no, some non negotiables. But for the most part, I think I, when I wrote First Steps in Music and Conversational Sophage, it was important to me to provide a structure 
that people could follow, but not dictate, this is lesson two, these are the songs and games you should play. It's lesson two in, in the structure, where are your students? Mm -hmm. And so each day the teacher makes decisions based on where their students are, and they make decisions about what's the next most appropriate thing to do. Do they need more reinforcement? Do they need to move forward? Um, are they ready for notation yet? Should they be singing in parts yet? Um, all of that's some decisions the teacher has to make based on what they are hearing the students do. So I made structures for the student or for the teachers to work their way through, but not be assigned. This is the third lesson in October, so you should be doing this right. lesson today with these songs. I don't know how you can do that because uh, both my methods, first steps and conversational solfege, are not grade specific. You might be in fourth grade doing first steps in music. Right. You might be in fourth grade doing book two of conversational solfege. It's, it's, it's right. going to be different in every situation. So I can't say October second grade does this. Right. You have to, the teacher has to say, it's not chronological, it's developmental. I love So developmentally, that. where are the students and what the teacher has to do an assessment and decide what is the next thing that they're ready for. But I have provided them with a structure so that it's clear what those next things are. Right. So they don't have to wonder what to do next. They have options. And yeah, I it's like almost that. like there's an outline, and then you can like fill it in. But I like that you also say, here are some things you could do. Yes, you have options. There are options. Um, and it, for example, in conversational solfege, there are two kinds of options that you can have. You can, Repertoire. Mm -hmm. So I didn't say, here are the songs for Do, Re, Mi, and teach these three songs or these five songs. I gave you a bunch of songs, and I said, pick which of these do-re-mi songs you want to teach. So there's songs you can choose, and then there are what I call techniques, and those are the games. So at the 12 steps, there are many different games or many different techniques a teacher could use, and I don't want to say, here we are doing do-re-mi at step four, do this game. Right. I'll say, this is a game you might do or could do, but I'm not going to say this is the game you should do. Right. It's a game you decide. Maybe this game is too baby for a sixth grade class. Maybe it's too challenging for or a second grade class. Or maybe you want to tweak the game. Me, yes, and I hope when I provided I think that these, happens a lot. I which hope is great. so. That would be my my hope that teachers would be creative and use my stuff as a jumping off point mm -hmm. and add more, and then hopefully post their new ideas right. on the fire album fundamentals, <laughs> so we all can benefit from all of the teachers' creative thinking. So no, mostly that they're the structures are in place, the eight part first steps in music program and the twelve step conversational solfege program, but within them the ways you approach it and the the, the speed with which you progress through them. Those are all open for the teacher to make decisions based on the student progress. Okay. Well, as you referenced, um, while you do try to keep a lot of flexibility, there are what we have come to term the fire oven non-negotiables or the golden rules. Everybody has a little bit of a different right, right. thing. Um, I wanted to kind of just go through those and have you talk about what they are um, and why they are so important, what kind of bearing they have on the experience of both the teacher and the student. Can you talk about them? Yeah, I think the one that I, is the golden rule, it's the yes. one I, I'll say to teachers, if there's one thing that you take away from my talk today, it is the golden rule. I call it Fire Robin's golden rule. And that is sing for the class, not with the class. Uh, the first time a teacher hears this, yeah. it sometimes is a little upsetting or, sh or, or shocking, actually, because mm -hmm. uh, I just was doing a presentation a couple weeks ago um, for Choristers Guild in Texas, and that's an association of teachers that are um, working with 
children in a church setting right. to bring music to them, but very few of them have degrees in music. Right. So they're mostly volunteers that want to help out, and they're doing these things. And all of them sing with their kids, mm-hmm. all of them. So and I, isn't this a problem? I'm sorry to interrupt. Isn't this a problem even just in choir? I mean, I remember hearing at Temple a, a professor addressing the choir directors in the program and saying, you have to stop singing with these choirs. I mean, even for the most basic reason, which is you can't hear. No, well, there is that, of course. How can you assess if you're singing at right, the same time? You can't you hear. Can't. Um, but it's interesting that people think uh, help, they're helping them out. And I think what they're doing is, I, I jokingly say, when you jump in and start singing along, you're not helping. In fact, you're slowing down the progress. Mm. What you're doing is temporarily satisfying your frustration. Yeah. So you become frustrated that they're not singing the right note or they're not remembering the end of a phrase. And you jump in and start singing, and then they start singing along. So the, this concept, sing for the class, with, not with the class, is based on the concept of split-second singing. And split-second singing is a phenomenon that children do very naturally. Sure. They're really good at it. It also, I, other place I witness it frequently would be uh, in churches when an organist is playing a hymn and the congregation is split-second singing one note after another. The concept of split-second singing is one note goes in, the person hears it and sings that note. And then the next note comes into their ear and the person sings that note. And as the time goes on, especially in a church you hear organists tell you this, the organist, if they're listening to the congregation, the congregation is always a split second behind because they're waiting to hear the note. And right. if the organist listens to the congregation, they start slowing down. Right. So an organist has to learn yeah. to ignore the congregation keep and keep forward. playing with a good tempo and because the, the audience is going to be a split second after each note. Here's the problem with that. One pitch goes in, one pitch goes out, one pitch goes in, one pitch goes out. There's no glue holding the pitches together. So there is no tune retention. You know that after the last hymn, they've just sung four or five verses, and you stop someone on the way out and you go, gee, that last hymn was a beautiful one. Can you hum a little bit of it? And they can't Mm. because they never heard the tune. Because one of the primary goals of First Steps in Music is musical independence. I teach with a 30-year plan. I want all the children I'm teaching today in school to grow to be 30-year-olds that are musically independent so that they can sing to their children. And in order to do that, they have to be able to sing a tune and remember a tune without me or a piano or a recording delivering them note by note what that tune is. 30 years from now, I want all parents to sing lullabies to their babies, and I'm not going to be there. So they need to become independent, and that happens by singing a pattern or a phrase and asking the, the listener, the parent, the child, the adult, to catch the phrase, to remember the tune, the phrase, and then to repeat the phrase or the tune back. Because what we're working on is tuneful development, the ability in the neural fiber to process and retain tune, not pitch. So we don't pitch match, we right. pattern match or we right. tune match. So sing for the class, not with the class, is a statement that upsets people that have never really thought carefully about it or, or, or know what a profound difference it will make. And I often will hear a year later, if I go back to the same, oh, I don't know, Indiana conference two years in a row, and all these people will come up to me and say, you know, I heard you say sing for the class, not with the class. I'd never done that. I tried it. I can't believe how well my children are singing. Right. Everybody says the same thing. 
And I think if you want to just keep the one word independence in mind, that alone should be enough inspiration to stop singing with children. When you sing with them, you're not giving them the gift of music. You are saying, you need me, and you can't do this unless I'm doing it at the same time. And we want to give children the gift of music. And that means we're giving them the ability to do this without our assistance. Yeah, independent music. Independent thinkers. music making. So hence, yeah. sing for the class, not with the class, is permeating in everything that we do. In 40 years, I have not sung at the same time as any children I've ever taught, and I've taught a lot of children to sing. <laughs> and this happens in choir as well. Uh, I, Lily and I both have directed many choirs, and it's the same thing. You sing a phrase for the choir to sing back, and you listen, assess where any issues are, and then you fix the issues by singing again for them and asking them to repeat. But when it's their turn to repeat, you must not sing at the same time. Mm -hmm. They will split second sing, and you're unable to assess accurately whether they really have acquired the tune or not. Sure, and I think, you know, I said before, one thing is you just can't hear well. If you're singing, it's just like if I'm talking while you're talking, there's no way I'm processing that's what right. you're actually saying. So if for no other reason, if nothing else is going to convince you, that's what I'll, you know, I'll say to students. Because I always get that look of like, what did she do? Did she just say, you know? Now, I do have a caveat to this one. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, does that, because I have people occasionally ask, does that mean you never can sing with children? And I have to be honest and say, well, if it's important to you and you really do want to sing with children, you can sing with children after, after. they can yes. sing without you. I was just going to say, that's what I'll do every once in a while. I say to my students, once they know a song well and can sing it uh, both in group and solo, then I say, sometimes we sing together. Sometimes we're going to sing fine. together, but not until you know. And I would singing. sing light enough that I wouldn't sure. be well. too much of a support system right. for them. And the same as piano. I never would suggest that a teacher plays the melody on the piano for the class. Uh, you can talk about that research, too. Sure. Uh, but children uh, developed more independence and more accuracy in their singing when they learned songs where only the chords or the harmony were played on the piano. So if you play the melody on the piano, there's that split-second singing thing that's going to happen again, and you're going to actually delay development in musical mm -hmm. thinking as opposed to help it. So yeah. if you want to use an instrument, just harmony, not never play the melody on the right. instrument. And only once in a while. And only once in a while. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll say to people, I think it helps you feel better, really. Um, not you, John Fireman, but you, the teacher. You'll feel better if you hear your voice in your ear you'll think, oh, they sound pretty good, <laughs> you know, but you're not getting a true picture know, that's right. of what, and they're not get, being able to. You know, another thing related to this that I hear sometimes from teachers is they tell me, well, if I'm always singing everything for them, isn't that going to wear my voice out? And I think the teacher hasn't stopped to think about it. When you're singing over the voices of the children, that's, that's what's going to wear your voice out. Brutal. And the, what's built into this curriculum is that there's a certain number of repetitions that you sing for the child, and then you expect the child to sing it. And since you're not singing with the child, gradually you build up enough repertoire in what they know. Yes. You, the teacher sings less and less and mm -hmm. less. So if anything is going to save your voice, it would be this Absolutely. technique. And I know because you know I have voice problems. The beginning of a semester is tough because there's so much singing on my part. But as it goes, it just becomes this beautiful, like, wow, they're doing the work. They're being musical. And you touched on this, but I have never had a person come back and say, you know, I tried it. 
It didn't work. I haven't either. Every person. Every is, person. Says, it's a revelation. It's a revelation. I was just going to say. They come back and they're bright eyed and yes. wide eyed and they're going, I can't believe how well my children are singing. Absolutely. And I, I'll even say to them, it just happened the other day. I started teaching. We're doing um, family folk dance night. So we were about to do How Do You Do Tea. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to teach the kindergartners. I don't normally do that with them. But I started to say it. Two seconds in, they're like, hen, hen. Hattie. So I stopped yeah. and I said, go ahead, finish it. There's, They don't know it at all, but people will say, but my kids want to sing right away. And I said, no, they're just split seconds singing with you. And This reminds me of yet another thing to say about <laughs> yes. this. And that is, let's suppose I'm doing How Do You Do Tea and I hear the students start chanting along. It wouldn't be the first presentation. They would just be split second singing. But let's say it's the second lesson. Right. And I'm doing this with them. And I start hearing them. One of the things I can do is me fade out. Right. And let, let them. them see if they, maybe they have they have finished learning it sure. already. And they're surprising me. I didn't think they were ready, but they are ready. They'll, again, it's sing for the class, not with the class. So that you can start singing. And if you hear them join in, yeah. fade out and see if they own it. If it goes all the way to the end. You, you did your job. If it doesn't make it all the way to the end, you say, okay, let me sing it exactly. for you again. Yeah. And now you they'll, they will learn that they, they shouldn't split second sing. They were just attempting to do that too soon. So that reminds me, in the infant and toddler curriculum, first steps, you have the four by four rule. Can mm -hmm. you just talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. Um, I made that up mostly for the parents because I'm teaching these classes, uh, let's say a one-year-old child, uh, those are classes that I direct with parents and children. And I'm actually teaching the parents, not the children. Uh, but uh, I wrote those lessons and made the plan to make the parents independent of me as well. Right. So I didn't want them only to have this experience with their child for the half hour they came once a week, but they would learn the repertoire and then do it at home. And I just, it's just, I have no research on this. It's just experience. That I found if I program a song or a rhyme and I repeat it four times in today's lesson and then I program it in four lessons, by the fourth lesson I'll turn to the parents and I'll say, oh, you should know this by now, I'll start you off. And that's my goal to see have I made the parents independent right. of me. Independence for everybody. <laughs> so, you know, there's nothing magic about four by four, maybe five by five will work better for somebody else or sure. three by three. And right. I actually think that af as after they've done four by four for a while, three by three becomes more and more possible. Sure. Good point. And, I, and I, I bring that up to say, and you know that I'm like this, my propensity is to see a rule like that and always stick to it. Uh, and Here's the flexibility. Sure. No, no. And I, I want to say to people who are listening, that flexibility exists. I think a lot of people, and we wrote about this in Fire Up and Fundamentals because I was pushing the point that I think there are a lot of people that take that rule and put it into first steps preschool and beyond and are very strict four times over four you know four lessons and then sometimes i say to them are they ready to do it in the third lesson then let them do it that's and right. i think people need to so you're okay with that if absolutely they, okay everybody heard that so the that's, faster they know they learn and the you know better. here's another thing when we're teaching in first steps and beyond um, we have the simple songs that have a certain number of repetitions. And I suggest that normally you don't invite the children in to sing it. They listen for two sure. lessons. And then you invite them in um, on the third lesson. Sometimes they're not ready till the fourth lesson. If it falls apart, don't start singing. Let, right. Say it's my turn again. And then maybe the fourth lesson. But I noticed that after a period of time, let's say a year, the kindergarten are using this curriculum. By first grade, when it comes time to learn these songs and you're, getting, you're gearing up for waiting to the third lesson to have them sing, after a year of being taught this way, they start learning songs faster. 
And so in first grade, some of these students are ready to sing the song in the third lesson. So it's a different kind of concept. In first steps in music, I'm not letting them sing at all for a lesson or two. In the four by four, I'm inviting them to participate right away if they can, but I'm just gonna provide all this repetition so that they, if they didn't get it in the first lesson, maybe they'll get it in the second lesson, maybe they'll get it in the third lesson. Remember, in the parent-child classes, the children are nonverbal, right. so I'm never expecting any response from them. And if the parents wanna chime in, I'm, I'm sort of being a little lax in the infant-toddler classes about right. sing for the class, not with the class. Yeah. I let the parents join in with me, but by the fourth, lesson i do say to the parents no you should be able to do this without me right and i'm gonna and test do it them. at home too yep so i do in class well let's get started yeah okay it's your turn right and infant and toddler that's a whole different ball game because as you said we're really teaching the parents yes and in and, and you know even first steps and beyond when i the three and four year olds can be taught with or without parents i've only ever taught three and four with parents oh really? so it's the same concept i uh, the parents will sometimes join in i treat the in those classes i treat the parents as if they're children so I use my microphone and go around and we're taking turns singing echo songs and I'll do the parent and the child okay. and the parent and the child. And, the and then I'll say, nobody sing. You know, it's my turn to sing the song. So I just, in those parent-child classes for three, four, and five-year-olds, the parents are children in the class. And many of them benefit and improve their own singing and <laughs> accuracy and intonation just because they are being run through the same exercise as the children are. Okay, so the, the bottom line with the four-by-four four concept is if you think in what we call now in education backwards design, the end goal is musical independence, or, yes. you know, with that piece of music. Yes. And so you don't need to be uber focused on four times, four times. You can do the four by four, but just be sensitive. It's a suggestion, not a rule. So now we're moving on the uh, down the list. So we've we've hit the big big one. Sing for the class. Yeah, that's the, the class. big that's one. The, the other big ones one. are very important also, but that's the banner one. So now let's talk about what it means when you say children learn best from another child model. Yes, this was a research study that another Elizabeth Green, not our Betsy not Green, our Betsy. but Elizabeth Green uh, did where she taught children um, um, a song and she had a young child sing the song to a young group of kids and the children learned it from a child voice and then another group of children learned it from adult female voice and another group learned it from a man. Um, and after a number of lessons, the children were invited to sing the songs independently, one at a time, and they were recorded and measured for accuracy. And the group that had learned the song from a child were the most accurate in their singing. And that, if you think about it, that makes some sense. Even a female soprano, adult, uh, is going to have a bigger uh, sound, a more you know, resonant sound. And that's just a, that much different from what the little child is making that it might be a little confusing to some children. Whereas another child singing it sounds like their own voice. They have easier access to it and pick it up quicker. So I often use that in the class, especially me as a male teacher. If I'm going around and doing echo songs and I'm hearing some of the children are singing in the wrong octave, my octave, um, I'll, if I hear a child that does it in the correct octave, I'll go and ask that child to sing the echo back and then turn to the class and say, um, Susan just sang that back to me. Let's all sing it back like Susan did. So I can build it into the, the, the pattern of teaching where I'll do something, I'll select a student who I know can do it accurately, and then I'll turn to the class and say, sing it like Jimmy, sing it like Susan, um, so that they are actually singing after a child voice instead of an adult voice, which has worked remarkably well Absolutely. for uh, those children that were struggling to find where 
which register to place their voice. Mm -hmm. You know, if I switch into falsetto, there are children that are already singing fine and they switch into falsetto. Right. Well, I'm helping the ones that are not, well, no, a better way to help is to have a child model it for the child right. rather than you create this false sound falsetto and have half the class confused right, by what you're doing. imitate that false sound. I think uh, using the child voice in class, I use, call it using the child model in class has been hugely successful. So I would, I would recommend everybody try that. I can even remember in college choir, our college choir conductor would select a person in the tenor section and say, sure. Jason, sing that for the tenor mm -hmm. section. Let's all sing it like Jason. Yeah. So he would select the section leaders, and they would not only help us out by being loud voices that we could split second sing, but they also <laughs> could provide the model of hearing the whole tune sung correctly with a lovely tone, mm -hmm. and then we would imitate that student's tone and melody. And I notice you're not making a praise statement out of it, which I think I is- I try not Yeah, to. me too. It's hard, but I- uh, You know, great, awesome, right. wonderful. Or like, um, why can't you sing it like Susan? Yeah. Like, why don't you sing, she's just, wonderful. I just say, thank you. Yeah, no, I thank love you. that. I think, thank first you. of all, that just makes life easier. You don't have to worry about false praise. I had one student teacher who constantly was saying, awesome. I said, awesome job, awesome job. And yeah. she had no idea she was doing it. And I said, you know, don't offer praise that's not earned. Um, and maybe don't even offer it right now when we're at this level of just getting them comfortable singing. I had a friend who told me, you know, the only thing that's awesome in the world is nature. <laughs> so I wish kids would stop saying everything is awesome. <laughs> only nature is awesome. You and I, I laughed big, about that. You know that. there's a big song called Everything is Awesome? <laughs> there is a Lego song. Everything is awesome. awesome. Anyway, that's awesome. All right. yes. So now, okay, so that one's pretty straightforward. Most learning takes place. Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> So now John has gone on to the <laughs> So, okay. So now we covered that one. Let's try another non-negotiable. <laughs> Let's go on to the next one, which is most learning takes place when a child sings by him or herself, yeah. themselves. This is all about being singing individually. Uh, in especially first steps in music, but I think again any any good teaching, I try to alternate between a group singing and then giving individuals a chance to sing by themselves. You know, I can I can go back to when I first realized uh, this, and it was in when uh, Lily and I and Helen Kemp started the Oklahoma Children's Choir, this almost 40 years ago. And during the rehearsal, Helen would uh, be working with the group, and at some point she would say, now, raise your hand if you can sing that whole phrase in one breath. And it, she might not even been after, can you sing it with one breath? Right. But seven kids would raise their hand, and she'd say, okay, Susan. And then Susan would sing it, but then Helen would be watching Susan and say, thank you, Susan. Now, can you make your mouth a little bit more north-south than east-west? Who else can sing that with one breath? Um, Martin. Martin sings it. And, it. and she goes, thank you, Martin. Now, your shoulders are a little raised. Could you just relax a little bit while you do it? And in the course of a rehearsal, I swear that she did this, she, there were about 50 kids in the choir. She heard every single child sing something. That's amazing. And after the rehearsal was over, I made a comment. About the third rehearsal, I saw her do this. It just blew my mind. And I said, Helen, I'm just overwhelmed by what you're doing. And she just very calmly and matter-of-factly said, well, a choir can only be as good as the sum of its parts. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I went, yes, the sum of its parts. Every person needs to be taught. And so in class, even as young as three and four years old, when we're doing a, an echo song or a simple song, we're going around the room with the group, and then I'm going to say, today, let's take turns. Or we alternate. Let's sing it with the group. Let's sing it with, uh, with uh, individuals. Let's go back and do it with the group. 
Um, sometimes when you're doing it with individuals in the beginning stages, you'll find a student that, or, or, or a few students in a row that are certainly not in the key or the pitch where they belong or the register yeah. they belong. And that's a good time to go back to the group. And so you come back and you, you bring the group back up where they belong using a couple of good models and then go back to the solos and continue where you left off. Try to get around the room and have every child have a chance to sing at least something by themselves in every lesson. Frankly, I would try to do it in all three of the first parts of First Steps in Music. I think you should, every lesson, do pitch exploration with the group and go around and have individual pitch explorations. You should do uh, fragment songs with the group and do fragment songs with solo singing. And you should plan to have a simple song, introducing it first with the group, and then when the group can sing it, ask for volunteers to do solo singing on that as well. So there's three opportunities right at the beginning of the lesson to alternate between group and solo. We know that children will develop further if they have a chance to sing solo. They have to hear their own voice. You know, I'm talking about sing for the class, not with the class, because of split-second singing. Well, that's what the students are doing when the class is singing together. They're split-second singing the strong, the weak singers are split-second singing off the strong singers. So I'm back in the same rut of not helping the weaker singers because there's, they're always singing in a group. By taking turns, the weaker singers are forced to carefully listen. And, and you make it as a game. I'm using the word forced, which is not a very sure. pleasant word. Um, but invite the students to take turns and do this. There's one other thing that I think helped uh, me make this decision to make sure to include solo singing in every lesson. And it was a conversation I had with Ed Gordon back in about 1980-81. I was uh, developing a program for Temple uh, for early childhood. And um, I was testing the children with the primary measures of music audiation. That had just come out. It came out in 1979. So I was one of the early persons using it. It was one of the things that got me so excited about music aptitude in children and working with this age. But at the end of the year, I noticed that my rhythmic aptitude scores had gone up dramatically, but my tonal aptitude scores had not changed. At least they didn't go down, because they can go down. Right. But they didn't go down, but they didn't go up much either. And I was chatting with Gordon about it and said, you know, I just don't understand this. The first thing he said, which was probably what he's encountered most often, he said, well, how are you singing much with the children? And I said, oh, yes, it's all just based on a right. Kodai curriculum. Right. It's all we do. Say. Everything is taught through songs. Yeah. It's all we do. We sing and we learn from singing. Oh, so you're singing. The whole half hour we're singing. And then he came up with his second question. How much individual singing are you doing? And I thought about it. Oh, and man. I said, none. None. I never have asked the kids to sing by themselves. I just taught them songs and a finger play and an mm -hmm. echo song. And he said, well, that's it. You have to go around and you have to ask the children to take turns singing. So I started integrating that concept into my teaching and working on techniques and games that would make it child-friendly, that they would want to participate and the scores the next year shot through the roof. Yeah. So the, the primary That's measures scores, and I never published this. It was never a formal research right. study. It was just my experience watching those PMMR scores not change much when I only sing with the group and skyrocket high. Well, that would be a I good study for it would someone be a, to do a fantastic doctor student. Anyone doing a doctorate, try yes, this. We'd absolutely. love to see some numbers on this. Yeah, because it, it just makes sense. And to think that you were singing with them every day and yet those scores were making, there were no gains. That's really telling. Well, luckily, they, they were singing every day because they would have gone down if they were not. Absolutely. But at least yeah, they stayed the same. You know what yeah. I mean? No, no, it's something. But they were probably all split-second singing, the weaker yeah. ones off of the stronger ones, right. and so not much growth so was taking place. So everybody stays the same. And if you really prepared. want everyone to grow, then everybody has to make an attempt by themselves. And not even just, you know, for PMMA scores, which are very important, but I think also it's going to help your students become more and more comfortable 
singing by themselves. Yeah, and you see that. Yeah, uh, you know, Lily, during when she was teaching in the elementary school, she taught you know, preschool through second grade. And during parent conferences, many parents, she would come home and say, another parent said this to me. Thank you for teaching my child to sing. She sings around the house all the time. Well, I just think that's the highest praise any Absolutely. music teacher could get. <laughs> if you have set a child on fire and they're starting to sing around the house and they're only five years old or six years old, Fantastic. they're going to sing to their child when they're yeah. an adult. My mom was a perfect example of this because she sang as a kid that when she became a mom, she sang to her kids. kids. And it was just natural for her. She had no science behind it. It was how she loved us. She loved us singing. And that's part of who we are as humans. And as so much of your curriculum does, it just taps in to what's already in there. Another thing I might say about that is it, it's it, music's in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, I always love to refer to that PBS special, Music Instinct. You can see it on uh, YouTube. So in that uh, Music Instinct with Bobby McFerrin hosting, the neuroscientists are talking about um, that music is in our DNA. And my uh, anecdotal story that sort of uh, gives evidence to that uh, when the children come to my preschool program with their parents uh, somewhere in the first couple of months of life, three months, four months, five months, and they become verbal somewhere in their twos, by the time they're three, just about every one of them sing in tune. And people think, wow, all your three-year-olds sing in tune. My kindergarten doesn't sing in tune. And I say it isn't that the three-year-old singing in tune is so remarkable. What is remarkable is that most five, many five-year-olds do not sing right. in tune. Right, they should be. All children should sing in tune. And the reason why they don't by five is not because they weren't born that way, but because they were neglected mm-hmm. musically. And the kids that came to me in their first year of life and are involved in these programs, the neurofiber that processes tune has been enriched. They are ready to learn to use their vocal mechanism to tap what's in their brain, and they just come out like language. And by three, most children can talk, and by three, most children can sing. Right. But they don't because the people are not investing in singing with their children. Yeah, it's not happening at home. It's not happening For the most part. And And many parents don't know enough to find a class where they'll they'll be encouraged. And I don't even know of the many opportunities there are now. There are preschool programs for music out there. I don't really know them well enough to to know, are they asking the parents to sing by themselves? Mm -hmm. Are they working on the children singing independently of the group? Are they? I don't know. All of those things will make a difference. Just attending a class is not going to help if it's not being taught correctly. Sure. Oops, did I just say that? <laughs> well, that's why we're getting more and more first steps uh, programs out there. More and more teachers. I hope so. Wanting to do it, it's happening for sure. It's happening, just not at the rate we all love. To so get. that non-negotiable, yeah. Most learning takes place when a child sings individually. So we want to alternate between group and solos. That's the bottom line on that, and not just sing everything in a group. Yeah, and I have to say, this is my favorite story about that. Some teachers came to observe, and they saw my fourth grade boys, you know, all the fourth grade. And afterward, we were all kind of debriefing. And she said, I can't, how to get those boys to sing? They volunteered, they were raising their hands. So I said, the next time they come in, you ask them. You know, I think it would be interesting to hear, I would like to hear what they would say. So she said to them, if you were in my school, you know, and you asked the fourth grade boys to sing by themselves, First of all, not only would nobody raise their hand to volunteer, they'd, you know, look away. And so, you know, why do you, why is it so easy for you? And this one boy, I wish I would have filmed it. He's just kind of like, well, why wouldn't we do that? And he said, you know, nobody ever asked me why I raised my hand to answer a question in math. This is what we do. 
we sing. Yeah. Uh, and But it wasn't, it's not this huge deal to him, like, well, I can sing, that's why. He just was like, well, why aren't they singing? And this is what you do in music class. That's what is tapping into what's developmentally normal. And setting it up at, at a younger age so it becomes right. natural to right. them. If they've not done it again, they've been neglected mm-hmm. again, and you're suddenly trying to do this in fourth grade, you're going to run into resistance because yeah. it's not going to be part of their DNA. Yeah. So it's so funny. I mean, we're only at number three, and you know, each one of these things could change the course of what they're teaching. So that was pretty amazing, right? I have heard John speak so much and in so many different contexts. And every time I still take away so much, whether we're just chatting or he's speaking or he's teaching or we're discussing or we're debating. I can't wait to hear what you think. And I hope you're going to hit up our Tuneful Beatful Artful Music Teacher Facebook page and our Twitter page to share some of your thoughts, your reactions, your reflections, your questions. I'd love to hear them and interact with you. And speaking of the podcast, let's wrap this up with our Ask Me Anything segment. This question comes to us from Allison S. It is, Missy, what inspired you to start this podcast? Well, this one is super easy. First off, I love kids even when they drive me crazy. I love teaching music, even when it drives me crazy. I love to talk about pedagogy, debating ideas. I love to hear other points of view. I love to help other teachers whenever I can. And of course, I love Dr. Feyerabend's philosophy of music education. When you add that to my great affinity for talking and my relentless tendency to ask tons of questions as I try to understand things, it seemed like the perfect recipe for a podcast. I can't remember exactly when the idea came to me, though I know it was a couple of years ago. I had grown to really enjoy and appreciate podcasts at that time, and the idea of just having interesting conversations with other people about the things that I love or the things that provoke me was incredibly appealing. So I stowed it away in my ever-massive and growing to-do list, and I kind of knew it would eventually happen someday, and it did. I decided to go for it uh, after finishing work on a book last year, and here we are. So thanks for the question, Allison. I hope you are all enjoying the podcast. And if you are, uh, we would love for you to subscribe. We'd also love for you to give us a good review and rating and tell your friends and share the podcast. The podcast is generously provided by the Fire Robin Association for Music Education. Please do consider becoming a member of FAME by visiting org for more information. If you have questions you'd like me to answer on future episodes, or you have ideas for interview topics or people to interview, or just general questions, please email the podcast at tunefulbeatfulartfulpodcast at gmail.com. Would you like to find out more about Dr. Farabend and his programs and resources? Visit www.giamusic.com slash Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I hope it was encouraging thought-provoking, and helpful for you. Please tune in for our next episode when we'll conclude with part two of the Fire Oven Non-Negotiables. And until then, keep doing all you can to create a more tuneful, beatful, artful world. <laughs>